0: It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I am joined with the CTO and co-founder, of current that would be trevor marshall trevor welcome back to ok computer thank you for having me again all right, we got a lot to talk about. I, I feel like the last time you came on the pod, it was just a calmer world here, okay? And so one of the reasons that I think, you know, the timing of this pod, we've had a few months of, of a little kind of, I don't know what you call it, uh, something going on in the financial markets, specifically focused towards the banks. It kind of brings me back to a period of my professional career that I was a bit uneasy. I have a lot of friends who are uneasy, more in the investment banking side of things, but we had a run on some banks we had some banks go into receivership. We have some banks that are looking for other lifelines. We've seen regulators, the feds, take some extraordinary measures to shore up really confidence in the banking system. And right now, it seems like they're doing okay on that regard. But one of the things I find really fascinating, and you know, we talked to Stuart Sopp last week, your co-founder, on, on the Tape podcast. I mean, we hit some of the more financial issues. I'd love to kind of drill down a little bit on how this is affecting the fintech ecosystem, which you guys are um, a big player on. You started this company um, in an effort to disrupt the existing banking system um, in the wake of the financial crisis. And so let's talk about that. There's a ton of stuff to talk about in crypto. There's a lot of kind of regulatory action and all that sort of stuff. And then, of course, we got to talk a little bit AI, Okay, (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So let's do it. Uh, Let's just talk about like, what is this period, let's call it over the last month, kind of been like for you as somebody who you used to be a trader. You worked at big financial institutions. You are now a tech builder here. Has has there been a little scar tissue for you? Because your career started in the wake of the financial crisis also.
1: Yeah. First time looking at CDS in a while. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, as CTO, you're not really browsing those charts um, that much. Especially when
0: they're like literally coming off the chart. (laughs) They're going upper right in a way that feels unnatural. oh man, we
1: got to get this logarithmic.
0: Isn't that that weird though? It's like most charts, bottom left, upper right is really good for risk assets except CDS. Yeah it's
1: yeah, it's uh yeah so the, you know definitely brushing off some of those old trading view
0: uh, just, charts just to be really yeah. clear people so cds are credit default swaps and those are the things that would basically insuring um against a company's default so if they're going parabolic yeah. that's really bad for the security in which they are meant to 100% yeah. yeah
1: and and i think the last time i was on i was like oh you know it's feeling pretty calm i think the contagion is finally <laughs> contained from basically the ftx and then you know Um, there's a lot of settlements that were coming out of from the creditors on that side. And it seemed like, okay, maybe we're getting into a stable place. It feels like there was a sense of closure and then Silvergate you know, happens.
0: All right, so let's, let's talk about this a little bit because it's interesting, I think, for a lot of people who weren't paying attention in the fall or into late last year, what was going on with FTX. And, and granted, it was really hard not to be following that story, at least if you're like watching markets. But that was like a really big thing. It ended in a perp walk of, of literally one of the most infamous people of, well, I was going to say famous, now infamous of this kind of last cycle. And for whatever reason, you know, the calendar, Turn it's January 2023, and people are putting that in the rearview mirror a little bit. But these are kind of all attached in some way, shape, or form, aren't they? As we kind of got into this new year, and then the situation with Silvergate and some of the other banks.
1: Yeah, you just have like you know business models. There's just lower trading activity. Like what happened to Silvergate is a real shame because they actually were leading the way on a ton of financial technology. Like even even though it was a relatively straightforward concept, they had this send network that allowed for real-time settlement across a lot of these different, um, exchanges and, and, and participants in the ecosystem. And it was creating a lot of healthy progress, um, for consumers and for, for businesses that were building with them. Um, you know, we, over the years I I spent time, that team is really amazing. Um, but it was just, that was sort of a consequence of the business cycle and, and I don't know all the details of what happened under the hood, but it was definitely like really started shaking things up. And then when SVB, uh, Went down. It was just like within a few days of Silvergate, even though if they weren't necessarily strictly related, yeah. um, you know, certainly we started developing this understanding of oh something's going on here, and it it became a really big thing. But I think from a technology perspective, it's a shame that that bank in particular went down because they were so forward on the way that they were thinking about technology coming together with new companies and really providing banking support. I think you know there's a lot of financial technology that we build that we kind of enhance our partner banks, but they were doing a lot of that on on their own too. So it's a real shame that they're no longer going to be a huge participants in the ecosystem
0: yeah, you know it's funny that that's a really interesting point that you make about them versus, let's say, a Silicon Valley bank who is just offering a lot of services to the startup ecosystem and obviously the VC capital providers and the like. And therefore there wasn't anything other than kind of relationships that were really important within that. But when you talk about you know silvergate and and what they were doing and how they were supporting a real nascent industry, right? that it was that was one of the hugest headwinds over the last five years or so. And that's, going to lead us to a lot of the regulation and some of the stuff that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. But let's talk about, like, where does fintech go from here, right? Because this is a real shot across the bow. I mean, these were well-established banks supporting innovation at a time where there's not a lot of regulatory structure around some of that innovation. Regulatory is a major pillar of what you're doing. And so how, how does this kind of make you rethink the environment or rethink the commitment to financial innovation in an environment where it seems like there's there's plenty of potholes right now.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's more important than ever because the the financial technology that we can extend cuz we're effectively we're not a bank and what we do is we work with banks to extend their capabilities effectively and we monetize that through building business models but ultimately they benefit from that as well. And I think so if you've got to come up with new business models or new ways of interacting with end customers fintech is that innovation solution that allows you to accelerate your customer reach, your revenue diversity, and so it's it's super important that we continue to work with banks who are forward-looking, have these des- d- desires to sort of play in the space of 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 being real leaders um, in terms of product and end user value, um, and I don't that that structure isn't going away anytime soon
0: we came out of 09 with this whole notion of too big to fail right so we have these kind of banks that uh, these massive money center banks and they're they're global and you know it seems to be that many of them are huge beneficiaries right of a lot of the troubles with the regionals and if you have a lack of confidence in a small bank for whatever reason therefore you know you were kind of encouraged at least by whoever your stakeholders were if you're a business or if you were super panicked as an individual right um you know with deposits a Above the FDIC insurance level, then you saw them go to JP or Bank of America or Wells. What does that mean for fintech, right? Because in, in a way, you know, it makes some of the, the biggest incumbents that much bigger. But I assume it also presents a really good opportunity for whatever comes next here, because the landscape has kind of been shifted uh, below uh, many, you know, builders' feats here. But that also has to present opportunity.
1: Yeah, I think actually regulation in the U.S. is super supportive of the diversity of banks that exist here. It's thousands. Yeah. And there's economic incentives that are given to smaller banks. And we benefit from that by basically working with smaller banks and still extending their capabilities. So I think, th- and if anything, that protection should become stronger if there seems to be a real threat of that. Because I think one of the things that makes the country um, like very strong with banking is that you can have these very niche, very Focused on the community, very like uh, regional um, concerns, and 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 have those relationships. So, I think that type of um, uh, regulatory stance shouldn't change. If anything, it should you know get stronger for the types of banks that we generally work with. Um, so, I think yeah, it's it's important that we're still able to help work with them and, and and extend those capabilities.
0: You obviously keep an eye on the markets. And when you see one of the largest fintech companies out there, Square Block, however you want to call it, when you think about there's a short report out last week that sent the stock down 20% in a straight line. And it's kind of interesting that it's not just regulators that are kind of out for you know some of these sorts of companies. It's also investors who have it in for some of these business models. And I think they think they're kind of somewhat vulnerable because they lack the regulatory structure let's say some of the incumbents i'm just curious like as a as somebody who's watched markets for a while when you see that sort of activity what does that kind of mean to you
1: to me it's definitely like uh hunting for weakness yeah. right and it's a uh, opportunistic i think when you look at someone like square they've done so much in terms of access and availability so like they've been able to onboard like the a ton of americans into payment systems that are fair and don't charge insane fees and now banking systems and and you know access to lots of different things that they've been rolling out so i think to me it looks like okay there's blood in the water And let's let's go. Yeah. Yeah.
0: No, it's interesting. And and that kind of leads me to the situation with Coinbase. So Coinbase last week got a Wells notice from the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. And that's basically a notice saying they're going to bring enforcement action against them. And I thought it was kind of interesting because. It comes at a time where, like, CEO, founder, Brian Armstrong of Coinbase, I mean, he has been really adamant about, like, and very welcoming to regulatory structure. And, you know, again, this goes back to the situation with FTX, which was also a competitor of theirs, and there was other a whole host of other exchanges over the last couple of years. I mean, these guys, it seems like, when you think about how they had beefed up on a regulatory front for years with people like Katherine Hahn on their board, you know, a former regulator of um, financial. Institutions and products and the like, it seems like that their pushback was was pretty stringent. And, you know, it was interesting. You know, the stock was down, as I said. 20% 20% on that Wells notice, but came back a little bit here. And so it seems like these guys, um, you know, have a case to make. Catherine Hahn, just mentioned, who then had gone to co-run A16Z Crypto with Chris Dixon, now has her Han Ventures. She wrote an op-ed in today in the Wall Street Journal, you know, kind of defending um, this kind of positioning and the lack of clarity on regulation. So I'm just curious, like, as you think about this, is obviously much more dire of a situation in the crypto space than it is in the fintech space, which is really, for the most part, operating with traditional products that we all know and interact with every day. I think the crypto situation is because it is so new. And so, you know, it's it's about fees. It's about um, knowing your customer. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. It's probably where fintech was, let's call it 15 or 20 years ago.
1: We have a lot of sort of rule books, playbooks to know. Like if we're launching a savings type of product... We know exactly what needs to be in place. There's very prescriptive things, and that's a benefit to us because then we can take that input, make sure that we're doing as you know as right by the customer as possible, and make sure that it's complying with everything. And then we can have confidence when we launch these things that great, we're meeting all the expectations, regulatory, customer-wise, whatever it might be. And so, yeah, I do think it's an element of like <laughs> regulatory price discovery or, or you know discovery. Like we're finding the lines sort of by bumping into them in the crypto space um, so I, th- I think that regulation by enforcement is not the most healthy thing um, but it does set precedence it does set you know maybe some sort of clarity which can be good over a longer
0: period. Yeah, I mean, especially if it's not like like a gut punch. It's not something that takes some of the like the players like a Coinbase out who've been here for a while. I, I think Catherine Hahn's op-ed, which was titled, How U.S. Regulators Are Choking Crypto, The Effort Would Stifle American Innovation and Competition. And that seems to be the objective. And I thought this quote was really interesting. While other countries are putting in place laws and regulations in the U.S., unelected officials are making major policy decisions about whether or not America should have a crypto industry. And so that's really interesting. There's been a lot of comparisons going back to, let's say, the early to mid-90s when there was a lot of unelected government officials who were opining on the internet and access to it and who could use it and for what reasons, that sort of thing. I'm just curious, like, how do you think about it um, just from what the U.S. is doing because I have a friend who runs a a digital asset fund. He invests in them and he said, listen, things are going hog wild over in Hong Kong again, which I thought was really interesting. I hadn't heard that um, in a while. We know that like one of the first crackdowns on crypto a few years ago was China, right? But it seems like Asia is doing really, really well right now.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I had the benefit of being in New York in like 2013, 2014 when the center of innovation was here. Like a lot of the smartest people who are working in the space or in that early developing space were uh, in New York. And it was really sad to see everyone, you know, as... Uh, the NYDFS became extremely active um, and sort of a lot of um, pressure came on, pushed people out of New York. It, it went, you know, you got Singapore, Hong Kong. There's a lot of now centers, you know, London and then your other sort of like offshoots of that. And generally it went like pretty global and th- there's been, you know, sort of centers that have developed in places that are like sort of very tech friendly, like Estonia, Lisbon, <laughs> in, in, in in Portugal and other places like that. Um, I would love if, all that innovation came back here, but in sort of this digital world, I don't know if it's completely necessary for the industry to go forward. As a New Yorker, I would love it back here. Yeah. <laughs> I would love a great tax base and a great like um, uh, you know community and 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 things that I can do with people in person. Um, but I don't think it's like completely necessary. I think it is a, a just a fact that most people who launch innovative product are doing it outside of the U.S.,
0: which is a pretty big sea change, right? Like if you think about that, if you think about Um, Just, you know, you've seen the stats about some of the most successful temp companies over the last 30 years, founded by... Um, you know, uh, immigrants for the most part, right people were coming here to get educated. They were staying here to build, right? They could realize their dreams with uh, in an open, democratic society with like supposedly a, like a like a fine tuned, well running, capitalistic system. And it seems like right now, when you look at like it seems like every week we look up. This week there was a hearing on Capitol Hill about the banking industry. Last week it was about TikTok. Week before that it might have been about um you know access to, uh, about our social platforms here and, and about free speech and the like, just seems like it feels at the moment that this is not one of the most innovative places on the planet um, to build. Yeah,
1: As someone who has hired people from other countries, um, the immigration process, like if we, if we were to just talk about that, like it doesn't make sense. You've got people who are coming here, paying taxes, pushing companies forward. It's not like, you know, it, the, the other option, which is now emerging is, oh, they stay in that country. You pay them there. Right. And, and that's kind of what the the incentive system is. Could today. that
0: have worked if we didn't go through like two years of COVID and, and kind of work from home, that sort of thing? Or, or is that already part? I of think it was
1: definitely, certainly when it comes to things like software engineering, like that, the sort of the offshore model has been developing for a long time, certainly accelerated. But now you don't even need that type of model where you have centers because there's a lot of companies who can take an approach that is remote first and you know you can go and build a whole bunch of things in that way if that's like sort of the direction you want to take your company so i think you know definitely a lot of the, the productivity tools were created over COVID and some, some certain expectations around what that work meant but it, it is just like a huge shame because there's so many talented people who now spend a lot of their time thinking about well what's my green card process like how do i make sure you know i've got my kids in school here but that's a whole other area so i think it's part of the same sphere of fostering innovation and if the u.s is going to continue to be the sort of intellectual capital output of the world we probably need to think about that the regulatory incentives that exist the economic incentives that exist to make sure that we're stimulating those things.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the, the Binance situation because it's a little different, right? And so I think the situation around Coinbase had to do with their earned products or their staking product, right? And so the CFTC, which regulates commodities, they're the one bringing this case against Binance and actually the founder CEO of Binance about misrepresenting what these assets were, right? And how they marketed to them. This kind of brings me back to the kind of ICO craze a little bit, right, of like 2007 Seventeen or so, and um, you know, all of this interestingly is in the backdrop of crypto values. Let's call it um, Bitcoin and ETH are at you know levels they haven't seen in a very long time, right after these huge spikes. Which, ironically, is about the banking system and the uneasiness and you know, like that we've had over the last month. So let's let's talk a little bit about this Binance situation. The writing has been on the wall for a long time that something was going to happen
1: with these guys. Yeah, I think it's it's really hard to be. A, an extremely um, sort of uh, prominent and uh, like kind of advanced player in the space at the size that they are. It's it's not really surprising. I think that, you know, generally we should be um, mindful of deceptive presenting or positioning to customers. It's something that we think a lot about, making sure that we're very clear with the types of products that we're offering on Current. So it's like, it's definitely something that that's top of mind. I don't want to get too into like, if I think it's wrong or right, because I think there's a lot of very specific details that the CFTC um, are picking up on. I think there is um, a lot of difficulty in getting it right if you don't have guidance for what is right. Yeah. And I think that's where, again, sort of the regulation by enforcement or bumping into the walls to know that they're there type of behavior. And I don't know if there is, without a real like effort to be forward looking. I don't know if that if this is going to play out in any other way.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny. You know, my like my two cents is that this could play out probably pretty well for Coinbase, right? So here's a company that was founded in the US. They've taken great lengths I think to kind of work within the regulation that has existed. Wells notices. We've seen them from almost, you know, towards every major institution, financial institution over the last 15 years since the financial crisis for some wrongdoing or not. I mean, look at Wells Fargo. They're still standing. They paid billions and billions of dollars in fines to the feds and to customers for really bad sales practices and the like. So, I I think that, you know, Coinbase, will probably emerge from this a bit stronger after they get through whatever enforcement there tends to be. And I think that maybe that's one of the things that kind of helps give greater clarity to the industry here in the U.S. and maybe could draw back some of the innovation.
1: Well, I think one of the things that's not being talked about enough is the most recent Coinbase product release, the wallet as a service that they just put out. To me, it's like probably the most important product that's been released in the last few years?
0: Explain that because I remember a couple years ago, they introduced a digital wallet. Okay, that's away from just having their app so you could transact in whatever digital assets that they had um, listed on their platform. And the wallet seemed to come at a perfect time when there was just the mania about NFTs and yeah. PFPs in particular. And that's a place in which you could transact on an exchange like OpenSea, and then you would kind of keep that NFT within your digital wallet. What was important at the time that they were able to create a wallet, and then what's different about what they just relaunched?
1: The fundamental sort of piece of this, there's kind of two, um, but the most important one is that that wallet that they launched previously was literally like keys on your phone, Coinbase brand, you're interacting with it. And to be fair, like that was not the first of its kind. It had good UX, but there was a whole bunch of other people who had created pretty good apps. What makes this so important is the fact that they're bridging The exceptional sort of custody practices that they've done, key custody practices, with the sort of API delivery of a wallet that also has self-custody. So you can have the sovereignty of your assets, which is sort of doing the real crypto thing and you get the backup and the convenience that's required to have a consumer application, like if you lose your phone. You know, like so like the, the, the biggest problem with all of these wallets, including things like MetaMask, and like if you lose the device, you know, it's, it's kind of gone. And if you have a backup service, it's like people might be backing up keys into Google Cloud, and it's just it doesn't have the same level of management that you would expect and, and that uh, actually regulators are gonna very clearly expect when it comes to custody of these keys. And so the reason why it's so important is they've created this thing where you get the MetaMask experience, but you've got backups. And the second part of that is that because it's an SDK, it's embeddable. This now can be natively integrated with other experiences without having to pop out to this other thing pop out to your MetaMask. This is huge. I think that one
0: of the things keep hearing from people who are building in different areas, maybe it was web three, but maybe it's just kind of like web two and a half, as some people like to say, community driven sort of projects. But how do you figure out that monetization, you know what I mean, for participation and and all that sort of stuff? One of the biggest things you keep hearing people push back on is like the wallet experience is horrible. I, I... into some NFTs and I bought them on OpenSea and I wanted to keep them all in a wallet and you know, between MetaMask and Rainbow and then Coinbase wallet. I, I finally settled on a Coinbase wallet. This was probably a year and a half ago, and I lost stuff. I bought one of those LinksDAO membership. You know, I was on a Twitter Spaces. I was listening to these ex-Wall Street guys who started this Links Dow. They set up a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization, and they sold NFTs to Basically, create the infrastructure to buy a golf course. I don't even play golf. I just thought it sounded like a cool idea. And I also said to myself, if I buy this thing, I think this will hold value. Maybe it was $2,500. They were only minting so many of them at the time. I bought it. It went into MetaMask. And I tried to transfer it to my Coinbase. I have no idea where it is.
1: That's like the most common story I hear with anyone who's interacted with. What do you adaptation. like? Do you like my purchase of the links down? That's though, or sweet, no? dude. I mean, it's no... <laughs> c d b i've i've vaped into plenty of random things for fun but like that is that's the most common experience is like what do i do with this thing here i want to give you money i literally like you, you see all the time people like can i like can i venmo you can i current you can you just actually hold on to it yeah. you know like don't worry i trust you you've got this right like that is what people want like this is convenience and like what existed and still exists because like this thing hasn't been really like you haven't seen the benefits of it yet because it's something that's just been released and i'm sure there'll be others that have very similar sort of principles but you haven't been like oh yeah it's like you know i bought it in whatever the app is let's say like ticketmaster mm-hmm. like i oh, bought it in ticketmaster it's actually stored there it's all part of the same thing i don't have to think about sending it out to some other crazy thing that i'm going to lose and so it's like you you we need this type of technology this is one of the i'm like Very excited about it because it's so necessary for that next step of combining like the real thing, which is these are segregated. You've got keys that have their own public addresses and are owned by you. And there's the way that they've designed it. There's sort of like the multi-party assurances to make sure that, you know, it can't be compromised in certain ways. There's all sorts of ways that you can solve it with math that – has been, you know, done so by So Bitcoin other fixes
0: it, is what you're saying. No, no not God. necessarily. <laughs> Coin, Coinbase fixes it <laughs> in this point,
1: yeah. in this case.
0: No, but like to me, like, I think it's, <laughs> it's interesting that one of the things I think that was lost on a lot of people, let's call it in 2020, 2021, even into early last year, is that people were in it for the culture, they're in it for the experience, or they're in it for that. But they didn't really kind of get the point is that, you know, when the number goes up, you know what I mean? Like, everybody felt good about financializing these sorts of experiences. Experiences, but when it went down and liquidity dried up and the fees were still really high, it felt really bad, right? And so I think – and this is a great example. You just mentioned Ticketmaster, but they just announced this week that they're starting a beta of gated NFT ticket sales. And to me, as an avid – concert goer, okay, and someone who ends up having to buy tickets on the secondary market all the time. And I'm also somebody who really appreciates the bands that I love and I want to pay them. And I know what the streaming model, like, it sucks, right? And these guys literally tour to make money and sell merch, right? And like, because they don't make any money. So the idea that StubHub or secondary ticket exchanges make more money than the primary sale that an artist would makes me ill. So this thing for Ticketmaster, again, you know, I'm a bit older than you, like going back to one of my faves, Pearl Jam, they famously in the early mid nineties, when they were at the height of their game, right after they blew up, they said, we're not using Ticketmaster. They're a monopoly and they didn't tour for a while. And they went to like venues where they could do it or whatever flip side of this 30 years later, you know, the fact that they're going to barbell approach this on something that, will most clearly be probably one of the best use cases, in my opinion, for NFTs. It lets the artist have a direct relationship with the fan. It takes out middlemen. It actually allows for secondary sales of that to go back to the artist. Talk to me about that because Ticketmaster app is not one of the worst apps I've ever used, and I use it often, okay? It does feel a little bit like a wallet, like the UI
1: is not bad, and it seems ready for this. If you rewind back to 2014-ish, 2015, like in people were really thinking about digitizing ownership and this was really before even the nft uh, initial contracts were written in ethereum the ar like the whole like erc space was not even like ethereum wasn't really a thing even at that point but there was this idea that okay well we can encode information that makes it such that you have ownership of non sort of base layer assets so not just bitcoin but like other things that you can encode and so this is very much a fulfillment of like a long term direction and movement and this is like why I always go back to fundamentals about what the direction and why the inevitability exists for this technology because it it kind of it just it becomes the most sufficient thing, the most fair thing. The problem of ticket resales, who benefits from ticket resales? If an artist decides to sell their tickets for $40 and then it's resold for $500, it's unfair, potentially, to the artist. They're being valued for more but not capturing that value. I think it's, like, I think it's very good that Ticketmaster is picking up on there is an opportunity to control part of, and be a part of this flow. And I think like some of the, the pieces that are required for that to be good are things like embedded wallets that have backup so that you're doing the real thing. Without Ticketmaster themselves having to stand up a whole custody arm, and as sort of regulation comes in on what it means to own assets, having to be involved sort of directly in that management. Do you
0: think we will see an announcement like Ticketmaster partners with Coinbase Wallet, like something like that? Something
1: potentially they might want to go and do it themselves. Like there's still like there's still like a whole open field for where do you want to develop core competencies, but at some point it will be unreasonable for someone to do it themselves. Like there's a engineering concept, which is never roll your own crypto, which is actually way before like cryptocurrency it's more like don't implement your own cryptography schemes for storing passwords. Cause you're going to mess it up. Yeah. Like it, it's just, there, there's like solved ways to do these things, follow the standards, follow the patterns and you won't get burned because getting burned is like, you know, credentials get stolen or whatever it might be. So, you know, it has to be economically reasonable, potentially even, Open source to a certain extent, something that you can host yourself, but we will converge on certain standards for making this practical um, for someone like Ticketmaster. Yeah, you know,
0: it's funny. I I also thought it was really interesting because Ticketmaster was also up on the Hill recently and Capitol Hill, right, for you know some of the the pricing practices. Uh, you remember T- Taylor Swift's thing or whatever. And it just seems like every company that we want to talk about, public or private, um, has spent some time in Washington of late. I, I thought it was kind of a brilliant move for Ticketmaster because if you think about, they own primary ticket sales for concerts, sports. Think about StubHub or these secondary marketplaces that are charging. I just bought tickets for Springsteen at MSG, and if you buy them on StubHub, let's say you're paying For a $250 ticket, you're paying $650 in the secondary. You're paying $250 in fees, like in fees. That makes Coinbase fees for some of you people who think they're way too high look really reasonable. I think it's a great way to put out one of your biggest competitors who wants to compete in the primary market too, which is getting tons and tons
1: of the juice in the secondary market. Yeah, totally. It's like totally strategic. I think The other benefit for there is that there are, if you're familiar with apps like Dice, which is like another ticketing platform that is tightly integrated also with the venues that they work with. And they have really set great UX standards for how to do resale and how to do wait lists and how to make sure that basically they're maximizing the people who really want to go with the people who actually go and like kind of bringing that together and figuring out where the right economics are in there. And I think they do a great job with the UX around that. The concepts are all there. And now it's like, how are we going to implement them? How are we going to scale them? And I think the benefit of doing it with these on-chain assets is that it opens up other opportunities for engagement or other types of secondary sales that don't have to be within just a ticketed venue, right? A one-time event that the value decays as soon as the concert starts or like, you know, halfway into or wherever, you can actually have something that has the value that persists beyond individual events. And I think that's pretty interesting. Well,
0: that, that's a great point. And bringing it back to kind of this Web3 mantra, the last few years you're in it for the culture and the experience of this and whatever. You know, one of the things, that, and, and I know lots of people who, like, when things are going up, they feel great about it. But when you have a wallet and you're looking at your digital assets and you're watching go down every day for six months, it makes you less interested in it. And I think one of the things that part of the ethos of, of Web3 and connecting, let's say, creators with their fans or, or whatever it is, is like that is something that is actually only value enhancing. You know what I mean? It's something that if you're taking out the middle people, when a band that I love comes out with a new album as a kind of boomer, I was used to paying $15 for an album and then iTunes came around and they made it $1.99 and then they made it dollar, and then they made it $15 a month for a billion songs. And so the bands that you love the most are not actually reaping any of your excitement about them and the history that you have with them. So I think like NFTs could be super... Super interesting. And, you know, listen, I get it. Some of you people are gonna be like, well, why does it have to be an NFT? Right now, it seems like maybe it's the best technological innovation to kind of take out all of the middlemen that are just kind of squeezing that relationship out from a financial standpoint.
1: Yeah, In my opinion, for NFTs in particular, there just has to be value outside of single points. Like, yeah, you can do an NFT ticket that value decays and, and people do that. And it, it's cool. It's like, it's especially for a secondary open marketplace, if you want to use a DEX and generally, I think a decentralized exchange, like a lot of the activity, certainly within the ecosystem, given the regulatory environment, will trend towards like peer-to-peer exchanges via a decentralized exchanges. It's just kind of the natural reaction to the regulatory positioning. And it's also the thing. This is the thing that we've been talking about or thinking about. So it's just kind of an inevitability for this to be the reason that it starts happening. But I think like the NFT value itself comes from like, okay, well, what else What else makes it available? Because ultimately what you're doing in this whole like semantic web concept is that the data itself can be immediately understood as a native component. So like you can be observing it from a completely different experience, like a completely different app can get the information without having to have some sort of contract between the person who has the information. Let's say you did it via like a, a Patreon, right? But only Patreon knows who the members are. And so you'd have to have an agreement with Patreon to say, oh, are you a member of that community? But if it's an NFT and you understand like what the sort of the descriptor of this thing is, I don't have to have a relationship with where that thing is stored to give value to it. And so you can create all sorts of experiences based on something that you don't have to have a direct relationship with. And that removes sort of uh, contracting bottlenecks, commercial agreements, which can leach value away from potentially the end user or the primary seller. So, yeah, there there could be some really exciting stuff. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes.
0: One thing that's interesting, and, and again, tell me if this is like a, kind of a dumb connection. I know there's that that meme on the internet about Web three VCs are now experts in AI and generative AI and this that whatever. And so, one of the things I think is kind of interesting is like when you think about one of the areas that captured I think a lot of excitement were these PFPs, right? And so these were all generative. What like when when you look at board apes, right? Like so there was ten thousand of them. And it was all generative. I mean that is. AI, generative art,
1: correct? Those in particular follow what are like heuristic rules. So, you know, you set certain parameters at the beginning and it just follows the path based on those parameters. And a lot of the machine learning companies are really just like ones where they've set up these really great heuristics that you follow those rules. I think the interesting thing that's happening now is that it appears that there is sort of a more generalized paradigm that we're working in where it, it does go beyond having to have be very prescriptive and thoughtful about the instructions, although you're even still providing inputs and, and strategies and structures. I think for me, that some of the stuff that that's exciting is a lot of the plugins that are coming out.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about that because that seems like like exploding. So chat GPT was launched late last year. I think it seems like they did not have dramatic expectations for it but it took off. It's one of like the fastest adopted SaaS models in the history of the web. I don't know man. I used it. I messed around with it. It, it seems kind of gimmicky like right now. It doesn't seem particularly accurate and doesn't seem like I'd want to be cheating for my term paper, you know, using that right now or anything like that. I think the internet still works pretty well in the old fashioned there, but talk to me a little bit about like, so these plugins, what are some examples and, you know, some very smart folks, our friend Packy McCormick wrote like a great piece this week. I think he called it Apex aggregator. A lot of proclamations on the web about how it's like just a game changer. How do you think of this as somebody who kind of is
1: always scouting out technologies to integrate and and kind of, you know, innovate? The proof will be when the value is delivered. And, and the reason why there's a lot of excitement now is that there's like clear examples of value being delivered, particularly around like customer service, or so many art applications. One of my friends runs or helps run a company uh, that does comic publishing, Global Comics, and they have the, this whole like generative art thing that's now flowing into comics and it's creating this really rich and, and interesting ecosystem. There's some really exciting stuff that, that sort of happens Are you happen. worried
0: that like, like right now in this world of like streaming media, we keep hearing this stuff. It's just too much. High value sort of stuff, like big names, like whether they be creators and, and actors, and, and it just seems like All of a sudden, I just remember like one of the things where there was like this chatbot that was made to be Seinfeld and it was going 24-7 nonstop, right? It was just, and it was learning based on like plots of Seinfeld. It just feels like we're like at a really weird spot despite it being so early that we could kind of just kind of get really sick of all this crap.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I mean, mean, more is more maybe. You know, I think like the, the thing is there will be applications of this that, change people's lives. The perspective that I bring to it, especially for finance or fintech in particular, is that if it can sort of emulate the ability for humans to detect emergent patterns or things that it wouldn't be pre-programmed for, that's where it's different than what came before it. And so, you know, we do a lot of account reviews, for example, like, um, hey, there's some suspicious activity potentially on this account. Let's investigate it and try to understand what's happening, you know, hear from the customer what might be happening on their account. If we can sort of do that at a much bigger scale, because you need people to, to do these types of reviews today, because you can never capture, as people use things in different ways, if you can actually like apply that type of, of uh, opinion or understanding or something that can actually interpret as it's going, I think that's really powerful. I think it will sort of bring a uh, much fairer, if like it's there's the the kind of control mechanisms built in place where you're QAing the output and making sure that the quality is there, it could make pretty huge difference, certainly on the, the finance side of like, knowing who customers are. But to be clear, you know, you guys have been using machine learning for all of this stuff,
0: right? So what's like yeah, we- building towards it? Is that fair to say? Like this is like-
1: At current we have like, I think literally two models that are actually like trained in our legitimate machine learning and even that is <laughs> like when you look at what's under the hood of a lot of other places probably more yeah. than than what well you know people who position i think machine learning itself like that buzzword or that investable concept came with a lot of like especially if you remember the chatbot craze of 2015 like there wasn't really a lot of learning under the hood yeah. maybe here and there like chat gpt is like the first thing that actually emulates the concepts and the desires and the the sort of momentum that the UX was in place for back then and now has the actual sort of engine behind it. But yeah, I I think like this is potentially really like the next step in making better decisions, like anything that relates to knowing someone quickly. Like, for example, the most powerful thing a general internist can do is like really understand how to take a patient's history What questions do you ask? What things are important? How do you aggregate all that information together to provide a diagnosis that maybe someone else missed? And my mom's a general internist. like I I talk to her a lot about this type of stuff, but what makes her an amazing doctor is the fact that she can do that really quickly and has that intuition of like, oh, well, this thing triggers this sort of -of out-of-band thing that maybe someone else didn't think about. Maybe I can get a piece of data over here. And sort of that emergent Style of thinking is extremely valuable, and if we're on what feels like the precipice of machines being able to help augment that, then you've got people with these tools augmenting what they their their own productivity output, which I think is really what where a lot of the excitement of this stuff is.
0: Well, listen, man, I'm excited by it. My experience, though, you know, coming into adulthood, professionalism was really in the mid. 90s, and I just remember all of the skepticism about the internet and all the applications for it, right? And then the craze that existed first in the financial markets, then among consumers, and then companies following fast and all that sort of stuff. And I guess, you know, as it relates to a lot of these technologies, though, that have been very transformative over the last 25 years, there's just the, the traditional hype cycles and you know all those cycles, right? And so it feels like we're in a moment right now. I think the rubber will hit the road a little bit.
1: I don't have the level of enthusiasm that a lot of others have uh, just because it's not impacting my work yeah. <laughs> directly right now and it's not impacting things that I'm thinking about. But it is starting to plant seeds especially on things like the customer service side where it's really important for us to be able to speak and understand customers quickly. If we can use that to help get better intent mapping of like, what are people actually talking about now I'm starting to go, okay, well, how can we do this? And you've got now other cloud companies rolling out. You've got Google rolling out BARD. You've got a lot of companies rolling out their own versions of this. And so it's going to become a lot more productized really soon. Right now you've got like one big player, OpenAI doing a lot of this stuff, but it's it's very quickly going to emerge into a bit of uh, the AI races. And this is why like a lot of Googles like reorient around making this a, a really top priority because they see what's coming if they don't. If we are really at the state where we have this platform for emergent thinking, there's so much productivity that gets unlocked from that that you want to be the person who's selling that.
0: Yeah, no doubt. All right, one last question for you before we get out of here. Do Androids Dream
1: of Electric Sheep? Oh, great question. And like one of my favorite movies although the remake of blade runner is, is probably like it's better not a remake it's 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 a it's Sorry. a sequel i sequel. mean it, it,
0: it, was but it was fantastic it, 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 right yeah
1: it spiritually kind of captured yeah. the original
0: yeah. um i love that movie yeah i just actually watched the original the uh, you know ridley scott's director's cut which is a bit like longer and it's meandering, a bit longer. and and uh, but it was fantastic yeah. and then Villa Venue i think that's a, how you pronounce his Villa name villeneuve yeah v- Villa, Villa Nueve, the director of 2049, (laughs) you just nailed that, Um, (laughs) uh, that
1: Dune movie that he came out was like like mesmerizing. The second one, I want to watch like first one, second one, back to back, the audio in that. Um, it was so good right yeah quick plug for the the I think it's Hans Zimmer but he, he has a great YouTube video about how he made that soundtrack oh really
0: it's funny going back and watching 2049 there's so many similar sort of things as far as sound are concerned mm-hmm. did you notice that um, and everything like that I thought it was great so alright well listen Trevor Marshall CTO co-founder of Current thank you for coming back to OK Computer thank you guys you and Stuart and the whole team here for your sponsorship of this fine program we can't wait to have you back thank you